Hey friends, you're listening to the Student Ministry Sermon Podcast from First Christian Church. Our hope is that these words bless you, lead you closer to Jesus, and help you follow Him more faithfully. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy. Alright, well, I'm just going to get going because we don't have much time. So, how many of you were here for the last time I spoke? You may not remember. A few of you? Okay. Alright, well, you might remember the last time I spoke is the time that I kind of got, like, really, really, really dark. And I talked a lot about how hard it is to, like, find hope and how life feels tedious and drifting. And I have good news for you, which is tonight is not such a bummer. Tonight is going to be pretty hopeful. Last time was hopeful and honest at its core, uh, but this time you won't have to think so deep to see the hopefulness in it. Philip, you are uh, you're legitimately a godsend. I hear walkie-talkies, that's kind of funny. Uh, so tonight, for those of you that haven't been following our series, our goal is to take stories that you've heard 999 times throughout your years in Sunday school or youth group, and to take those stories, and on the thousandth time, learn something actually new, find a meaning that was there and that you didn't see before. That's the goal for this interval. And, and that's, a, that's a meaningful undertaking. That's a hopeful thing. And so tonight will be positive in a way that last time wasn't. Tonight is a thing to be happy about. So the start of our story is two years ago I was in the hospital. I should give context because it doesn't exactly strike you as an upbeat beginning to a story. It's not really a once upon a time type thing. Okay, so two years ago I worked in an insurance office. How many of you have uh, worked in an insurance office? Have you, have, have you actually worked in an insurance office? If you have, I, I know that all my eighth grade guys have for sure. If you've actually worked in an insurance office, then you know that there is one defining trait of working in an insurance office, which is your soul is crushed every morning like a garbage compactor, like, like you're just being stepped on by the sky. It's wonderful. It's a great job. You fax all day. You file all day. Your boss yells at you all day. It's incredible. And I got paid even less than I get paid here where I actually get to do what I enjoy. Philip, I'm promising you the magnets. I'm not just stupid. These magnets are being really ineffective. But be that as it may. Uh, so I worked with my mom, and my mom has been described at different points as uh, both Viking-like and robotic and how driven she is. And I don't mean to say that my mom doesn't have emotions. My mom is one of the most honest, vulnerable people I've ever met. But what I mean is, is that I think that if you task my mom with, like, hey, see that grizzly bear over there? Your job today is to kill that grizzly bear in hand-to-hand -hand combat. My mom would have more than enough time to cook dinner after killing that grizzly bear. In fact, she would probably skin the grizzly bear, and that's what she would serve to us, like a grizzly jambalaya or a grizzly pie or casserole or something. Anyways, tonight's not about cooking bear meat. Uh, my mom and I worked in the same office, and uh, I had woken up one morning two years ago, and my stomach was killing me. That's how you know this is a good story. My stomach's killing me, and I thought, eh, it's just anxiety, because, you know, my boss always yelled at me, and I need everybody to like me, as you can tell from my love of being the center of attention. And so my stomach was killing me, and I thought, well, it's just anxiety. So I choked down some toast and some water, and I could barely get that down, but whatever. I'm like, eh, you're weak. Fight through it. So... I do that, I get in the car with my mom, and we're driving on California's wonderful, bumpy roads that are always under construction in spite of the fact that they never are actually effective roads. And we're driving, we're hitting bumps, and my stomach starts hurting even more, and I think, okay, I'm all right, it's just, it's whatever, whatever. And then Bon Jovi comes on the radio, and I feel more nauseous, and I think, well, that's just Bon Jovi, Bon Jovi's just bad, no offense to any of you Bon Jovi fans, but the, all the people who listened to Bon Jovi regularly just groaned, and everyone else didn't care at all. And that makes me so happy. Anyways, 
My stomach starts getting worse. Did you just say, who's Bon Jovi? Yeah. He sings living on it, you know, the, oh, we're halfway there, living on a prayer. He sings it just like that, too. He goes to his concerts and he's like, hey, everybody, this is living on a prayer. Oh, we're halfway there. Oh. Anyways, horrible song. I hate Bon Jovi. And it wasn't even living on a prayer. It was like some horrible other song he did. It had like a woman's name. It was like, Suzanne. Anyways. That is not the point of this story, don't distract me. The point of this story is that after like five minutes, I am white-knuckling the chair, and I am like a plank because my stomach is killing me. It's like an alien when the alien bursts out of his chest. I doubt any of you have seen that movie, but that's what it was like. Hey, he has, okay. And I say to my mom, Mom, I don't feel so good. And my mom says, ironically, what, do I need to take you to the hospital? Yes but we're not there yet. We get to work, we pull into the parking lot, we park right next to my boss's beautiful Mercedes. Crazy that she can afford that when she can only afford to pay me minimum wage. But anyways, we park, my mom leaves to go tell my boss that I'm not coming in today, and I start thinking as she leaves, oh my gosh, my boss is gonna murder me. I am so scared that I'm gonna die. And so I, I throw open the truck door, and even though I'm delirious and dehydrated and sweating like a Siberian exile that Stalin just got done torturing, I throw my feet in front of the other, and as soon as I put my feet out, my feet give way, and I fall onto the asphalt. And my face is all cut up with rocks. And to get even better, I turn my head to look at my office, and I just projectile vomit all over the asphalt. It's like The Exorcist. It's like, you ever go to a water park and those buckets keep filling up over the course of the night, and then a kid walks under them after 30 minutes and they dump down. You remember being that unlucky kid? Well, it's like that, but a mixture of vomit and tears. Wonderful. The stuff that dreams are made of. And I start crawling up the steps of my work, trying to tell my boss, I'm going, oh, I gotta tell my boss I'm too sick. I gotta tell my boss I'm too sick. I sounded like a smoker, apparently. I even look in the window, my coworker's looking at me, and she just immediately closes the blinds because it was so horrifying. Well, my mom, my mom comes out, and she's like, yeah, no, they can figure out that you're not well. And they put me in the truck, and my mom takes me to urgent care. Now, see, urgent care is a funny name for that place because they treat your care as pretty much anything but urgent. But we get in there, and in their defense, I just want to say most of the people that are in there are people that are just too dumb to figure out they have a cold or a cat allergy, and they think they're dying. Well, we go in there, and they put me with this lady. And Heather, you'll have to explain this to me later. I don't know how the world of medicine works, but they put me with this girl, and the first thing she goes is, says is, I'm not a doctor. That is not what I want to hear. But I think maybe this is a nurse. And she goes, I'm also not a nurse. Uh-oh. Who's this? She tells me, well, I'm in school. I'm in school also. She says, I'm in school, and I'm going to be with you till the doctor gets in, which is extremely troubling. And I look at her, and I'm delirious, and I say, hey, lady. I didn't say, hey, lady. Don't say, hey, lady, guys. They won't like that. I go, hey, lady. Uh, am I going to be all right? And she uh, clearly hadn't been trained to deal with patients, and she goes, oh, I don't know. And she says, I don't know. I mean, some people end up all right, you know, but there's other people. I mean, look at other people. Other people don't end up all right, so I have no clue what's going to happen to you. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And I start crying because I'm delirious. Then I start throwing up and crying, and this elixir of tears and vomit is all over the place. And uh, the doctor comes in. I notice two things about him right away. One, he looks like the least healthy man I've ever seen in my life. He comes in. And I can't say what specific trait it was, but in his eyes, it felt like he had seen the most horrible things that you could ever dream up. And also, the second thing I noticed was that he had the ugliest tie. He looked like a detective in Miami. And he feels my stomach, and he goes, okay, let's see what the problem is. And he pushes it down on my stomach, and I throw up everywhere. And he goes, oh, so that hurt. 
Yes, doctor, it did hurt when you pressed on my stomach while I was throwing up. He presses on my stomach some more, like I'm an accordion, just pushing vomit out of me. And uh, eventually he figures out, okay, you have appendicitis, you need to go to the hospital. So we speed up to French Hospital and slow, because Marion's a death trap, no offense to Marion. And I would get into French Hospital, my mom's looking for the front desk, and I, I'm delirious, delirious at this point from dehydration. And there's this guy sitting in the waiting room, and he's covered in prison tattoos, like what were clearly prison tattoos. And, uh, you know, I'm out of it, and I go, yeah, this is a good place. And I pass out at his feet and just curl up in a ball. And, uh, you know, credit to that man, even if he was part of the cartel, he did not harm me, so credit to him. They get me in the hospital bed, you know, they're doing their tests, they figure out it's not appendicitis. And that's when it hits me, the thought that I didn't think I would have, I think, oh my gosh, am I gonna die right now? And it's weird, because what would you think if you were, you know, when you think of what your dying thoughts would be, what would your dying thoughts be? You know, I thought I would think about God, or heaven, or hell. Or you think, oh, I think about my family, uh, or my friends, and the impact I had on them. I think about my legacy, and all the good things I did, just smile back. And all I could think was, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I'm going to die, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, give me painkillers, give me painkillers, this bed is so horrible, the guy next to me is really gross, please get me out of here. And those were going to be my dying thoughts if I was dying. And it, it, it's amazing to me, because you think that you have this elaborate plan for how you're going to think things through. You think, okay, well, I'm a person that's really contemplative. I'm a person that plans ahead. And then when I was in that, oh, my gosh, you guys taped it like you stapled it. That's so amazing. Thank you so much. Oh, my gosh. Anyways, it was weird to me that I wasn't thinking what I was going to think. Anyways, it comes to pass that they do give me painkillers, and let me tell you, even though there's an opioid crisis going on, and I don't want to make light of that, painkillers, when prescribed to you, are amazing, it turns out. So I spent two days tripping out on painkillers, and I kept dreaming that Harrison Ford was next to me, and he had that one stupid earring he has. If you're past 70, you shouldn't have one earring. And he's looking at me, and he's going, kid, you're failing the mission from God. And I'm like, Harrison, what does that mean? What is the mission from God? He never told me. But even though I never figured out what my problem was, or I guess I have problems, but I didn't figure out what that problem was, I survived. I recovered, and now I'm wondering. I came away from it with a realization of sorts. I came away from it realizing that it's the way that we interact with the world and with ourselves is different than I thought. You know how people always say, you hear people say, oh, well, humans are animals too. You know what trait we share with the animals? Uh, stupidity. Short-sightedness. Stupidity again. The list goes on and it's peppered with different uh, synonyms for stupidity. Uh, and, and that's not even, you know, that's not a new truth that human beings have remarkably poor uh, understandings of the plan that God has for us. That's not news that our hearts are deceitful. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Even if it's in scripture, I didn't realize just how little human beings value the real important things in life. We default to our survival instincts in a snap. It's so quick. And we're, you know, when we think of sin, we think of, oh, okay, well, there's theft and there's murder and those things. But just part of the state of the world that we live in is that humans tend towards apathy. Humans tend towards accepting the unacceptable. We tend towards defeatism and looking at the insurmountable and thinking, I can't get past that. I, I'm stuck in this proverbial mud and I'm going to be here till I die and long after. That is my introduction to our Sunday school story. 
Very upbeat and positive, I know. Okay, now, if you read the Bible a lot, I assume you all do. You guys all read the Bible a lot, right? I can tell. This is a, this is a crowd of biblical scholars. Wonderful. If you read the Bible a lot and you get some scope on it, one of the things you're going to realize is that usually virtually anything that you're experiencing right now has been experienced before in some way and has been dissected and pondered and talked about in Scripture. A lot of the times that can be shocking to us because in our pursuit of individualization, we think that every circumstance in our life is like a fingerprint. They're unique to us, and all of them are different beyond the pale, and there's no comparison. And then that's kind of true. Like, it's true that you're never going to find anyone that has the exact same circumstance as you. But that feeling of perpetual defeat, of just giving up, that's not unique. That goes across all times and all ages through all of history. And that brings us to our story. It's a story you've probably heard a lot before. It's a story of Moses. All right. Well, let's get into it. My papers are all over the place. You'll have to forgive me. All right. So, okay. 3,000 to 4,000 years ago. That's a long time. That is a very long time. To give you like an idea of how long ago that is, Joni has only been here for 8,000 years. So that's like only half of how long Joni's been here. Anyways, 3,000 to 4,000 years ago, the Israelites move into Egypt. Now they move into Egypt and they're welcomed as friends. They're valued. They're treated with respect. And to them, they're, they're fleeing famine. They're, fle they're fleeing what to them is a failed start at the promised land. And for a time, it goes great. But then enough time passes, and they start multiplying. And the kings, the pharaohs, the new ones, you know, human memory is really short. And that friendship starts to fade from their memory. And friendship gives way to distrust, and distrust gives way to their oppression of the Israelites. And oppression gives way to their enslavement of the Israelites. And for 430 years, the Israelites are enslaved, and it's every bit as horrible as you can imagine. And they cry out to God. And they cry out to God, and they say, God, please free us. We're your chosen people. You promised us. And God doesn't answer immediately. And they do what we human beings seem to have made into a tradition, and they assume that a not immediate answer from God means that there's no answer ever coming. And so they kind of accept that this is the new way of things, that this is their fate. That there's no room now for their God, and there's no room even for the Egyptian gods in practice. There is just room for one God, and that is Pharaoh and his cruelty. And the cruelty doesn't end there because years later, Pharaoh is sitting in his lavish palace that they built, and he's thinking about what he saw. He's thinking about when he looked out, he saw more Israelites than ever, which seems great. If you own a bunch of servants, that seems great at first because that means more servants. But if their number gets high enough, just as easily as they went from friends to slaves, they can go from slaves to rebels. They can go from slaves to the people that overthrew the Egyptian rule. And so Pharaoh does what to us seems unthinkable, and he orders that every Hebrew boy, Hebrew, not Hebrew, Hebrew boy that's born be tossed into the river. Now, my joke about the word aside, that's a pretty serious thing to order the mass murder of a bunch of children. And there's this Hebrew mother who's been pregnant, and she delivers a child, and she knows what she's supposed to do, but she holds it in her arms, and she can't do it. 
just the few seconds that she's been with him, just looking at his face, she loves him too much. And so she knows the risk that she's taking, but she puts him in a basket and she tells her daughter, I want you to follow your brother down the river and make sure that he gets somewhere safe, somewhere far away. And so his sister runs alongside him as the basket floats down the river. And the Nile was so sacred and so central to Egyptian life that it happens that the basket floats right near the daughter of the Pharaoh, who's with her royal procession. And she sees the basket, and she has her servants bring it over, and she looks inside it, and she sees a baby. And she has the same feeling that that mother had. She thinks, well, this baby, we can't get rid of this baby. We can't kill this child. And so she sees his sister, not knowing it's his sister, hiding in the reeds. And she says, you, go get me a Hebrew woman. I want her to nurse this baby, and we'll tend to him. He'll be tended to in Pharaoh's palace. He'll be fed. He'll be educated. He'll be treated not as a slave, but as a true citizen. And she decides to name him Moses, which means to draw out, because she says, I drew him out of the river. And so a lot of time passes, and Moses grows up, and he doesn't have to know his people's pain and his people's suffering and their hurt. But he's aware of it. He's aware of what they're feeling. But he can't do anything. I mean, Pharaoh's the most powerful man on earth. Moses can't order them to be free. He certainly can't ask Pharaoh. I assure you that wasn't a gunshot. <laughs> well, actually, I can't promise that, but you'll be okay. We got Robert here. Hi, Robert. Where is he? Yeah, yeah. Anyways, time passes, and Moses feels the futility that he can't do anything, and he sees an Egyptian beating a, a Hebrew servant. And Moses looks around, and something inside him snaps, and he beats the Egyptian to death, and he buries him in the sand. And you know, enough time passes that he thinks, all right, well, I got away with it. No one saw it. Maybe it was a bit hasty of a decision, but you know, it was the right thing. I, 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 you know, I did the right thing. And then he finds out the Pharaoh's ordered his execution. And so he has no choice but to run into the desert. He has to run far, far away, and it's like losing his home a second time. It's like going down the river again from everything that he's ever known. And he goes into the desert, and he finds a tribe, and he marries into it as a son, becomes a shepherd, a job that nobody wants. And, you know, as he holds his son, the Bible says, I don't have the verse because my papers are going to fly everywhere like birds. He says as he's holding his son, I'm a stranger in a strange land. And he accepts this is his fate, that any preconceived notions he had about what Egypt would do and what the Israelites would do and how they'd escape or anything like that, that it's settled and this is where he'll be. He'll go from the Hebrews to the Egyptians to the nothingness of the desert and that is how it will be. And the Bible says that at the same time he's accepting that, that God hears the Hebrews crying out. He hears the Israelites. And he has an answer for them. I'm going to try to find the verse in this mess of papers. Please forgive me. If I can't find it. Oh my gosh. Well, whatever. I'm just going to tell the story. Can you guys forgive me for not having the exact verse? Were you guys even going to flip to it anyways? Let's be honest. Wait, what's the verse? It's Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, I want to say. I got you. Why? Oh, okay. Hey, Josh. Now, Moses happens upon a bush when he's out in the wilderness with his flock. And the bush is burning, and he decides to go up to it because that's a weird sight where the bush is burning and it's not burning up. And as he approaches, God says, Moses, Moses. And Moses is afraid, and he said, who is that? And God says, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God 
of Jacob. I am the God of all of Israel. Oh, wow. Do you have something for me? Thank you so much. You guys ready? You guys want to hear the actual verse? Okay, this is Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Ready? Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush isn't burning. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see him, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to see God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Thank you for your phone. You know, you would think that you would be celebratory in that case when someone tells you that your people will now be free of suffering. The wind is making my eye cry. Oh my gosh. You think that just like we talked about the dying thoughts, that there's a clear answer to what you would be feeling. But Moses, he doesn't feel excited, and he doesn't feel like he's been given an honor. Moses offers his God his apathy instead of a desire to help in the change. And Moses says, well, God, well, what if they don't believe me? And God says, my power through you I will make them believe. And Moses says, well, you know, what about like the, the Egyptians and the, and the Egyptian gods and, and Pharaoh and Pharaoh's army is just too much? And God says, I will make them believe my power through you. And Moses says, well, God, I, I'm not eloquent. I can't speak. I mumble. I stutter. I had a speech impediment when I was younger, and it's humiliating. It's the worst thing to deal with. And to be asked by God to speak for your nation when you have a speech impediment, it's not just daunting. It feels impossible. It feels like too much. To Moses, that was the one thing that he couldn't do. And what does God say? God says, who gave mankind tongues? Who makes them blind or gives them sight? Who makes them mute or deaf? I will speak through you. And they will know my power. And so, I'm just going to give you a glimpse of what transpires after that. Moses goes to Pharaoh, and of course Pharaoh laughs at him and laughs him out of the room. And so what about the Egyptian gods that Moses brought up? God sends down ten plagues, each of them having specifically to do with the domains of the different Egyptian gods. Blood in the Nile, fire raining down, the death of the firstborn. And what about the Egyptians? God says that as the Israelites exit Egypt, that he will strike the Egyptians' hearts with regret and they shower the Israelites with their food and their possessions. And what about Pharaoh and Pharaoh's armies, the most powerful man in the world? God parts the Red Sea, and as the Israelites go across it and the Egyptians pursue, he lets the divide be removed and the sea crashes down on them, seemingly less than they deserve after tormenting God's people so. Let me tell you that there were 170 pharaohs. There were 2,000 Egyptian gods. There were 100,000 Egyptian soldiers in the military. There have been countless crises, disasters, catastrophes throughout the whole course of human history. And there has been one true god. He wasn't made. He wasn't 
made by time or chance. He's not like Pharaoh rotting in his tomb or the statues that are crumbling right now. The Egyptian soldiers, for their part, are buried in the sand somewhere, while the one true God is around you and beside you and within you. And so when I think of our circumstance and I think of our apathy, I can't help but think that maybe we just don't fully understand the plan like God does. Because God doesn't tell us to worry. He doesn't tell us to become apathetic. He tells us that through Him, even if times are tough, that in the end we will be delivered. Oh wow, those papers are going to go any second. God tells us, I've delivered you before. I will bring you out of where you are now. And I think about Moses' name. I drew you out. And forgive me, I have trouble thinking that it was just a random chance of the Pharaoh's daughter naming Moses that. I have trouble believing that it wasn't that God put a reminder on Moses' head for all of us. I drew you out before I am aiding you now. And I will deliver you again tomorrow. Thank you for sticking with me as my papers blew everywhere. I definitely had to go off script a bit. But now that I'm done here, I'm going to pray us out. Not for the sense of closing it. But because I think that the best thing that we can do when we have heavy questions and heavy thoughts is to come to God. And after that, we're going to dismiss to our life groups. I believe that high schoolers are staying here tonight or junior highs are getting dismissed. If you all bow your heads with me and pray, we can all get going. Father God, thank you so much. That's not, I know that's a cliche opening, but really thank you. That's what we should be saying. Every word out of our mouth should be thank you. Because I know you've told us what we would be and where we would be without you. And I'm sure glad I'm not there. And for any of those who are there, Help us guide them to you. Help us bring them to you and further your kingdom. I know that things didn't go as planned with the papers blowing everywhere, but I just pray that everybody here takes away the big idea, which is that through you, any circumstance, no matter how scary or insurmountable or any of that, that you can get us over. We may not get the answer that we're expecting, but we can know that in the end of your plan, Everything is made right. Father God, we give all of our love, all of our joy to you, all of our faith and our hope. In your son's name, amen.